This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Homes Study School, offering a high-quality Catholic education to transform lives and shape future leaders, and now offering the Seton Scholarship Fund, a program dedicated to providing financial assistance to families facing hardships and allowing their children to benefit from a strong Catholic education, fostering a love of the faith. For more information, go to seatonhome.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation, each week, I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon, who I just saw and who I'm about to see because, Ed, we're doing this episode from our ordinary studios, but um, I was in D.C. this week to visit you, and then next week we will be, I presume, recording this show from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Spring Plenary Assembly, Plenary Assembly in Orlando, beautiful Orlando, Florida. Am I right? Uh, that's the plan, yeah. I have some questions about that, actually. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, about the Spring Plenary Assembly in Orlando, Florida? Yes. All right. Um, specifically, I, I, I haven't spent much time in, in Florida. It's relatively terra incognita to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am aware of how one dresses in the summer months in Miami, thanks mm-hmm. mostly to 80s television, but I'm not entirely clear on what the dress code is for Orlando. Is this, is Florida, I'm aware that there is a sort of, um, there are three Floridas. There's the panhandle, which I've understood is basically Alabama, which to be clear, I'm saying that's a good thing. Um, there's there's uh, the middle. I, I wouldn't of, want to say it's basically Alabama because I don't think the panhandle is Northern Protestant Alabama. It's just that sort of Gulf Riviera of, uh, of Mississippi and Alabama. Right. But I mean, culturally, it is of the South, if you yes, like. Yes, yes, yeah. It's a, it's a certain kind of Southern place. Right. Okay. So so you've got the Panhandle. You, you've got, um, I know, the sort of inland of the peninsula, which, which, if I've understood this right, give us the sort of Florida man headlines, of which we all delight. Um, but I don't really know if there's, there's broad cultural distinctions between coastal cities off of the Panhandle, like. Orlando and and Miami and other places do they have their own character or are, they, are is is it all much of a muchness down there? Yeah, Orlando is definitely not what I would call Cuban Florida, Miami Florida, right? Okay. Um, and Orlando is definitely not Panhandle Florida, which is to say Southern Florida. I think of Orlando as a I think of Orlando, and I could be wrong, and I'd be welcome. I'd welcome Floridians to tell me otherwise that. I, I, well, I think of Orlando, I suppose, as being something of a company town. Jacksonville is definitely Florida, or excuse me, is definitely Southern, Southern, not in the way that Panhandle Florida is, which is sort of that Gulf Riviera kind of, um, uh, kind of quasi-Catholic, maybe Creole culture. Um, Jacksonville is sort of a Southern, the kind of Southern city in which one would expect to find like NASCAR and, and um, rednecks, I think. I don't know if that's a pejorative term or not. I'm- I'm pretty sure it is, but okay. <laughs> well, it's too late. I've already said it. But I think of or I think Orlando is kind of a, 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 I think Orlando is kind of a liminal space. I think it's sort of Florida's liminal space in which it exists, mostly for conferences and transfers to the airport. It's not quite a company town in that I don't think it would be fair to say that everything Orlando is Disney, especially since like Orlando has a population of some three hundred thousand people. But I. But I do think it's a kind of convention town. 
Okay. And a kind of a liminal space. Outside of Orlando is definitely kind of Everglades. Can I make I, a confession? Yeah. Um, you, you described Orlando as kind of a liminal space. And that's a phrase that I hear you use from time to time, usually when we're in an airport. And you often describe airport departure terminals as being a liminal space. And they, I've actually heard are. you... I know, like, and I've 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 heard you often say this to other people, you know, in bars and in lines of one description or another, and and you know, passing when people pass coming on, like, oh, this this line, or you know, here we are, this place, and you say, yeah, I, I always think of departure lounges as kind of a liminal space, and everyone sort of looks at you and nods slowly and sages and goes, yeah, yeah, you're right, but JD, neither they nor I have any idea what the hell you're talking about. No, so that's you not just, true. You know what I mean by that? No, Places I don't. I'm a be- I'm a genuinely stupid man. Ask around, and I would like you to define it for me places that are in some way at once everywhere and and nowhere all at once places that are at the limbo is that what you're saying no it's not a kind of limbo (laughs) i don't don't think that's what i think of as as an airport departure lounge and presumably orlando i don't think orlando is the place where a person who has sort of natural who will be infused forever with natural but not supernatural happiness will 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 find isn't that disneyland I don't think it is. I don't think that's the pinnacle of natural happiness by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Like, do you remember, actually, we experienced this, I think, in Dallas. There were parts of Dallas which were very much, okay, we're in Texas now. But then there were parts of Dallas where we could have been in any sort of convention city USA, right? Where it's sort of just like this place is of nowhere and everywhere at the same time. Does that make sense? It does, yes. And I think of Orlando as being a hot and humid kind of version of that. Okay. I could be wrong. I may be Where are we on pastel suits is what I'm really trying to get to, though. I don't think that's an Orlando thing. I don't think that's an Orlando thing. Okay, here's, 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 I think this might be the best way to understand Orlando. As I'm looking at Wikipedia now, Orlando is the home base of Darden restaurants, the parent company of Olive Garden and Longhorn Steakhouse, and the former parent company of Red Lobster, which is also based in downtown Orlando. It seems to me that Olive Garden and Red Lobster and Longhorn Steakhouse might specifically sort of convey the Orlando vibe, which is to say... Orlando is the Olive Garden of America. Okay, I, I believe that Orlando is the kind of prestige That's Olive Garden of America. I, I may be convinced otherwise. Uh, you know, we may go... First of all, we may hear from... Orlando or Florida listeners who do not like this and 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 want to tell us and and honestly please understand Orlando or Florida listeners I am happy to be convinced otherwise and we may go there and discover that it is an extraordinary place unlike anything we ever would have expected and that we're very blessed to be there um but I'm 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 this is all very depressing I thought you were going to tell me that it was like a space town and you know there is there is aerospace stuff and defense contract stuff there too but isn't this where like isn't cape canaveral near orlando cape canaveral is near orlando although i think it's actually in cape canaveral um but it's close but like presumably like close like synonymously close like disneyland close or is it well like disneyland is in a disneyland is in a is in a place called reedy creek you may have heard of the reedy creek development district which is suing or being sued by, or in some way, I have not. I have scrupulously insulated myself from uh, the, from the all bishop, of that or the governor business. of Florida. Um, um, I, I am happily hand. ignorant there, but okay. I, I take your word for it. Okay, well, I I think you can if you want to wear a pastel suit, you can do it. 
but I don't think you have to. Okay. All right. Well, this is, yeah, all right, fine. Now, before we talk more substantively about the USCCB meeting, which is coming up, where we will be next week in Orlando, probably, maybe we'll podcast from an Olive Garden. No, we're not going to do that. Because, you know, Ed, when you're there, you're family. I, we're not, I'm not going to an Olive Garden. You can't make <laughs> me do that. Maybe we'll podcast from a Red Lobster. I'm allergic to shellfish, so. Have I told you about um, my experience with Red Lobster in, over the course of my life? No, I, I haven't. I didn't realize that this was something that. I, no, I have no. I, I'm okay now. I need to know because well, how do you have a relationship with Red Lobster over I the course a, of a lifetime? I have a strange set of sort of neuroses even surrounding Red Lobster. Um, when I was a kid, you know, Red Lobster has amazing commercials. I think you would concede that Red Lobster has amazing, mouthwatering, tempting, delectable commercials. Well, again, I'm allergic to shellfish, but I take your point. The cinematography is is quite something. It's they are in my mind, and again, I'm going only from childhood memory here. Yeah, same. Yeah, um, I, I do remember that Red Lobster seemed to be the sort of seafood equivalent of Applebee's in that they presented a reality that the they presented a sort of faux reality on television that they couldn't possibly be well, delivered. Right. So I didn't realize that as a child. And you know, the other thing is Red Lobster is always running some kind of a special, two for two lobsters or all you can eat crabs or something like you know shrimp fest or something like that lobster fest whatever there's always some big promotion going on and i'm susceptible to advertising as many of us are and uh, so when i would see those commercials as a kid i would earnestly and frequently ask my parents if we could go to red lobster and my mom who doesn't like shellfish my dad my dad doesn't really eat much fish or probably any certainly not shellfish my mom is now a vegetarian but at the time i think probably didn't eat any fish or probably very much shellfish or any shellfish but I think they. I think my mom also knew that if I said if she said that they just didn't like it, I was going to keep nagging them. So my mom said something which seemed like actually, which was a convincing line of argumentation for me about why we couldn't go to Red Lobster, which is that we couldn't afford Red Lobster; that it was unaffordable. And you oh, know, so now we, it became an aspirational goal right. for you. And we were at a working class family. Red Lobster may well have been unaffordable to us, but in my mind, because I was told so frequently that it was unaffordable, it was sort of the pinnacle or paragon of American fine dining. You would know you've arrived right. when you could eat at Red Lobster. And so when Kate and I were in our early marriage, there was a Red Lobster near us. And I told her, without going into the whole detail, I told her, in Silver Spring, actually, because we lived in DC, I, I told her um, you know, that I had always wanted to go to a Red Lobster. And, and she said, well, why don't we go Tonight, and I said, well, tonight, tonight. You can't just spontaneously I, I go to Red Lobster. to get a table for tonight. You know, I'm not, I'm not wearing not, my dinner jacket. I I did. And I said to her, I, I don't think I have a suit clean. I'd have to go to the dry cleaner. Do I? Do you have a gown? I Should we invite others, make a night of it? I don't think we'll be able to get a table. And Kate just sort of said, what do you think Red Lobster is? And I said, well, Red, it's, a, it's, it's something, you know, it's really something serious and, 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 and fancy and I'm not fancy and I'm not sure I could just jump right into it like that. And so she made me go to Red Lobster that night without a suit on. I was certain that I'd be mortified, you know, that I'd be profoundly underdressed. You thought there'd be it. some snooty waiter at the door who's going to say, would sir yeah. perhaps like to so borrow this jacket like to, borrow to feel one more of comfortable? Our right, exactly. And I, not only did I think that, but I thought like, I didn't know how I had eaten lobster maybe once or twice before, but I didn't know how to eat lobster. And so I was certain that I would be, I would use the wrong fork or, um, or otherwise just embarrass myself by being insufficiently, you know, ver versed in, in, in the etiquette of eating the, 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 <laughs> the rock lobster 
uh, that was the spiny rock lobster served at, served at the place. So I I learned how wrong I was, and I confronted my mom, and she started laughing, and she said, "I didn't know we told you that. It's just disgusting. I would never go there." And that was, <laughs> was the end of it. So speaking of things, Ed, which are not disgusting. Speaking of things which are actually awesome, which were which I had a very positive experience at, um, you know, I was traveling this week and I wanted to tell you a little bit about my travels. I dimly remember you being in DC for a period of time. Yeah. Um, so first, so on Sunday and Monday of this week, I was in Philadelphia because I spoke at something called the Foley Symposium at the at St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia. And it was a, great to be there. And it was kind of, they have this seminar on, or this symposium, I suppose, on Catholic communication, which is named after Cardinal Foley, who was a longtime prefect of the Pontifical Council for um, Social Communications and a Philly boy. So I, I went to that, and it was very cool to go there because St. Charles Borromeo Seminary, you know, which is this 19th century, beautiful palatial property in, in, in Overbrook, Phil, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. Which, if I'm not mistaken, is being turned into a red lobster. <laughs> well, it's been sold, and it's it, 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 the seminary is moving to a new facility on the campus of some college, and and this is uh, the, this incredible facility. I, it sounds like it's being turned into maybe an assisted living facility. It's been purchased by a hospital. And so I've been there before, but I wanted to kind of see it in its glory uh, before it's closed. So I was very glad to be there, and I'm hoping that I'll be able to write a story. Uh, I'll be able to interview the rector of the seminary about just the monumental prospect of moving 140 or 150 years of stuff uh, that has accumulated at the seminary and an extraordinary art collection and extraordinary sacred art that has been in the chapels of the place over to this new facility and making decisions about all of that. I mean, it's just a logistic, it's a fascinating logistics problem. Uh, so I was there for a little while, spoke at this thing. Then I went down to DC, had dinner with you and some friends of the pillar, which was great. What I can remember of it, it was good. <laughs> then uh, what I do know is that we were told to quiet down. And um, yes, and I, I resented that all of us were told to quiet down um, because uh, really they just meant you. That's that's entirely possible. Like when the maitre d came over and asked our table to be quiet, I wanted to just like I wanted to clarify to her like I'm being quiet. Well, no, hang on. Um, it wasn't the maitre d or anyone affiliated with the restaurant who came over. It, no, was, it was just a no. It was a woman from another table. I watched no, her go back and sit the down. People from the other table complained to the restaurant, but it was the restaurant who came over. No, 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 no. It was it was a, it was a lady from from the other table. I watched her go and resume her seat. Oh, okay. Well, all the worse. I like to have a good time, JD. Yeah, I know. So then I went to rural Indiana, Ed, and um, and the reason I went to rural Indiana is because, uh, as you know, the church right now in the United States is in the middle of something that we'll call a Eucharistic revival, because they call it a Eucharistic revival. And it's a three-year process by which Catholics are um, encouraged at their parish and diocesan and national level to more to have deeper faith and devotion in, in the presence of the Lord in the Eucharist and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And part of the Eucharistic revival will be next year a Eucharistic Congress in the summer in Indianapolis, and preceding that Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis will be four walking pilgrimages from San Francisco-ish, from, I want to say Connecticut, from Crookston, Minnesota, the headwaters of the Mississippi River, and from Brownsville, Texas, four walking pilgrimages of pilgrims from those locations to the Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis. And there'll be Eucharistic walking pilgrimages, whereby the Blessed Sacrament will be effectively processed across broad swaths of our country with sets of core teams, which they're calling perpetual pilgrims, I think playing on perpetual adoration, with these core teams of what they're calling perpetual pilgrims, and then with um, 
accompanied by people from the local dioceses and parishes that they'll pass through. And the Eucharistic Congress uh, had a kind of a tune-up, a practice pilgrimage, is having, undergoing this week, a kind of practice pilgrimage in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, whereby a small group of pilgrims um, is traversing the diocese from the city of Fort Wayne to the city of South Bend by walking with the Blessed Sacrament each day, sort of from parish to parish, such that they left last week on Sunday, and they'll arrive in South Bend on Sunday, uh, and have stopped. will have stopped at parishes each night along the way, as a kind of tune-up or practice of this concept to sort of see what works, what doesn't work, what they need to learn, what they need to do differently, kind of to get used to doing this. And I went out to um, see how it was. And um, I, I know some of what happened to you. Uh, what happened to me? <laughs> I was, I mean, you know, um, not to, not spoiler alert, but yeah, you, you injured yourself. I did. I did injure I, myself. I was at a certain point worried you were going to lose your foot. As <laughs> I did. You were on the phone to me late into the night, having walked 14 miles on what by all intents and purposes looked to me an awful lot, lot like a broken ankle. Yeah. Um, so I was concerned about that, but if we can talk about your Pratt Falls later, yeah. what was the tone of the procession? What were the pilgrims like? Well, here's the thing. I was really curious about how this whole thing would work because, you know, there are solemn processions, Eucharistic processions, where, um, you know, the Eucharist is processed under a canopy held in a monstrance and people walk behind and pray and sing devotional songs and streets are closed and there's incense and you know what a solemn Eucharistic procession looks like. There are solemn Eucharistic processions, but I, and I know how to picture that, but I didn't really know what the plan of the these Eucharistic pilgrimages would be or what the sort of liturgical praxis would be of these Eucharistic pilgrimages when they weren't doing solemn processions. So their days, each of their days kind of unfolded like this. They had this small group of pilgrims. In the morning, they attended Mass at a parish. From that parish Mass, the and with them was a priest, from that parish Mass, they left the church in a solemn procession, walking about a mile to some local landmark. The day that I was there, we walked to the courthouse of Noble County, Indiana, so walked to the Noble County Courthouse, whereupon um, the Blessed Sacrament, which had been processed along, was placed in the monstrance on a table. Everyone knelt in adoration. We prayed. There was solemn benediction. And then the group sort of broke up. Um, and I understood how that part was going to work, but I didn't really understand how the rest was going to work. But the con- but the, the Congress worked out with the Bishop's Conference— kind of some liturgical norms for a way that they could continue to process beyond that solemn procession so that they could walk really from one parish church to another. So what they did is, it's very it's very different, and um, it's very, um, I don't know, I found it to be well thought out um, and, uh, and, and really interesting. So they have a kind of, the, this group of pilgrims who constitute the pilgrimage have a kind of a support vehicle, in this case an SUV that they traveled along with, and they have received permission from the conference to have in the back of that SUV a small wooden tabernacle, which is effectively affixed to the back of the SUV, in which they can... For on the very, outside? No, on the inside. In the, okay. the, I don't know the right word, but in what is the trunk of the SUV. I see. Okay. Uh, in which they can repose the Blessed Sacrament only for like five or ten minutes for a period of transition. So, for example, after they had this solemn procession and then they had benediction, they reposed the Blessed Sacrament for like... I would say 10 minutes in this tabernacle, which was affixed to the back of this truck. Um, and they had per- effectively a sign off from the conference to do this. 
And during that period of time, the many people who kind of processed with them sort of dispersed. And then this small group of pilgrims put more sunscreen on and then prepared to kind of walk this longer trek to the next parish where they would stop. And they, they only reposed the Blessed Sacrament again in this sort of um, small in-the-truck tabernacle for the, those 10 minutes. Overnight, when they stop each night, they repose the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle of the parish church at which they are stopped. Um, they, they repose the Blessed Sacrament in this small portable tabernacle when they were having lunch. You know, they broke for lunch after, you know, three, three, two-thirds of the way through their day. They broke for lunch, and they repose the Blessed Sacrament in this small tabernacle. And, um, and then I didn't see it, but I suppose if everybody had to go to the bathroom and they stopped at a porta potty or something or a store or something to go to the bathroom, I suppose that they could repose the Blessed Sacrament there. Although they didn't while I was there, because after they had this solemn procession of, 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 of about a mile, they sunscreened up. And then the priest who was with them had this kind of harness that had been custom made specifically for the purposes of Eucharistic processions that kind of, um into which the monstrance, the base of the monstrance could be kind of fitted so that it was easier for him to carry over a long distance. So he was vested in um, alb stole. He had a camelback kind of under his alb, but he was vested in alb stole. He wasn't wearing a coat, but it was like about a million degrees out. Um, And he had this um, harness into which the monstrance could be fitted and in which he could carry it. And the procession worked as follows. There was one of the pilgrims who walked in front who was the map reader, whose job was to sort of say on which streets they should turn, you know. Then there was one who bore a crucifix. Then there was the priest with the monstrance using this harness to make it easier for him to carry it, followed by other pilgrims. And although there was the perpetual pilgrims who were the sort of official walkers, other people from the parish decided to walk. So apparently this happened each day that other people from the parish just said, I'm going to walk with you. And either they walked the whole day or they walked five or six miles and then they got somebody to pick them up or whatever. So um, the walking was along, not like, obviously not along interstates where that's illegal, not like along super busy state highways either, but along kind of country, country roads. And during the course of the walking was the recitation of the rosary, the Divine Mercy Chaplet, other pious devotions and praise and prayers and um, and you know just walked along and they did this for fourteen miles basically breaking okay, only for for lunch. Who who's doing this? Give me give me some idea of the demographics because um, I because I genuinely have no assumptions. I mean, are these are these what what I suppose um, it would be popular to call young people. Yeah, it was these youth. young persons. Are they locals? Are these Eucharistic revival stands who, you know, are from HQ? Are they local kind of all of the above to the actually. parishes? So interesting. So again, this was the reason they were doing this in Fort Wayne South Bend is basically the Eucharistic Congress Inc. teamed up with um, the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend to run this week-long pilgrimage as a kind of test, you know, test of concepts so that they get tuned in and get a sense. And there's an, a nonprofit called Modern Catholic Pilgrimage, which organizes a lot of walking pilgrimages in the United States. It's an apostolate run by a married couple and then a few other people, and they kind of organize all kinds of walking pilgrimages. And Modern Catholic Pilgrimage has effectively kind of the contract with the Eucharistic Congress to organize all of this. And so on this walk, which was, again, a kind of a test case, the, the ongoing pilgrims were um, a guy, the guy who runs Modern Catholic Pilgrim, his summer intern, who is an undergrad at Notre Dame, a business uh, and theology major at Notre Dame, a young woman um, named Bridget, who is from the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, who's 25, who is entering a Carmel, a cloistered Carmel in um, in the, in the uh, fall, 
Uh, not Fort Worth. I see you giving me that look. We'll talk about uh, Fort Worth. Nope, nope, nope. Who's entering a cloistered Carmel in the fall. And then uh, a young uh, documentarian who works for a company, the company that will next year sort of produce a documentary about these Eucharistic pilgrimages so that he could kind of get a feel for how it works to a guy named John. And then there was a priest of Fort Wayne South Bend who was a recently ordained priest. I think he said he was ordained in 2020 who had been – actually, he was kind of well-suited to it. He's a very intense, hardcore guy. I look forward to – obviously, I'll be writing a story about this. I look forward to kind of writing about this guy. But he was kind of a very intense, hardcore guy. A West Point grad who served, I think, two tours in Afghanistan and then entered the seminary. And uh, and, and and I asked him, you know, what do you think about this? And he said, well, it's very similar to my sort of military experience because we have this mission. We're sort of adapting it as we go. We're aiming to achieve it as well as we can. And part of that is just being both – aware of the things which are important and being adaptable and then kind of powering through. And it was super kind of interesting. But I found it to be, I mean, honestly, Ed, I'm, I'm looking forward to writing about it, but I found it to be a very edifying experience. I mean, I was, again, a little unsure how these liturgical pieces would work, but it was, I thought it was done very reverently and I thought it was done sort of practically. And it was cool to see. Um, I did the whole um, walk with the of the day with the group. I, I expected to be there for all of most of Tuesday and all of Wednesday, but my flights on Tuesday were a mess. So I, I, I sat on the tarmac in DC for a long time and then I had to take a different flight out of O'Hare. So I just I didn't get there on Tuesday until basically they had arrived at the parish to which they were walking and there was a kind of parish holy hour and these kinds of things. So I got to talk with them, but I didn't really get to to, to be a part of the you know, to be a part of the walking on Tuesday. But I walked with them the whole of Wednesday. And um, and it was really edifying. I mean, the, the the young people who were involved in it were very sincere about what they were doing. They were very, they were normal and also very serious Catholics, and 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 understood the significance of what they were doing, and spoke beautifully about the both the sort of spiritual implications of this, and maybe perhaps some practical implications of this for the life of the church. And and then some of the pilgrims who kind of walked along were very um, were people of of, of real earnest prayer. What struck me most about the whole thing was how grassroots it was. Like, I think a lot of people now, when you talk about like the Eucharistic Congress or the Eucharistic Revival, it's seen as this, for some people, and I know that because people told me this, it's seen as this very sort of USCCB kind of project that's very organized and it's a program and all this. But this was very grassroots. It was like all these parish people were helping and parish people were providing host homes and parish people were providing lunch and the group's car, SUV, all these engine lights had come on. And so they had to switch to someone else's SUV, you know, who, from the parish who volunteered to basically be their support vehicle all day. And um, and so it was very, very grassroots. And one of the things that one of the pilgrims, this guy John said to me that I thought was very true is that, and that I thought was very beautiful is that they were seeing, going from parish to parish in this diocese, the natural and organic connections between these parishes. So they would see the parish community, and then they would see, and in every parish, it's like the people who are helping us here are also like, oh, and my sister is over in St. Joe's, and she's going to be the one who helps. So there were like these very human, natural, grassroots connections between the the, the parishes where they were going. And I, I just thought it was, I, I thought it was extraordinary, to be honest. I mean, it was very, really very cool. That's great. I'm I'm glad that you had a good trip. I'm glad. <laughs> I look forward to reading about this um, in full. Uh, you've been doing a lot of road trips lately, and they they are they are producing good I like, quality I like reporting. Kind of dispatches coverage. I'm telling you, on the road with JD Flynn is your <laughs> is, is is your natural maybe my natural niche, other than sort of it's where you're happiest. It, I do like doing that kind. Of, I mean, look, I love you know it. 
I love deep diving into real estate records in the 990s. I, I honestly do. You do, but you can do all that from your phone. Yeah, but I mean, I love doing that kind of journalism, but I also really like doing this kind of journalism. So it was very cool. And it was just, I, I, it answered for me a lot of questions about how the, how these national pilgrimages will, will kind of work. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, yeah. So do you want me to talk about the other part of it? There's another part? Oh, you mean you <laughs> crocking yourself and... Uh... Okay. So <laughs> about two miles into it, we're walking along this road, praying the rosary, because the whole thing was praying the rosary basically we're walking along this road praying the rosary and you know i was kind of doing my thing so i'd like run ahead and take some pictures or hang back and take some pictures or like i was moving through the line at this point there were a lot of people who were walking with us like the solemn procession was over but there were a lot of people from the parish or from the community who were kind of walking with us. this was super interesting i talked with some people who came every day like who lived in the city of fort wayne which is larger, I think the fourth largest city in Indiana or something like that. No, it's the second largest city in Indiana who who lived in the city of Fort Wayne and who were part of the diocese and who had come out each day to walk that solemn procession and then a little bit more with the group and were kind of expanding there a little bit more each day. So I was talking with those people. So I'd kind of move through the group of pilgrims and interview people and blah, 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 you know, kind of doing my thing. But at this point, I was just walking along with the group and we're walking along this highway or whatever. And there was a a minor bit of potholing in the road, like some small potholes. And Don't oversell this because I've seen the footage. Yeah, some very small little divots in the road, basically. It may have only been a shadow, actually. <laughs> and I, I just, my foot landed differently than I expected it to, and I ate it hard. I <laughs> rolled off the road, basically. And, and, and the documentarian was right there, so he captured this video, in which I'm walking, and then all of a sudden I'm like, wow! And then I sort of tumbled off the road. I showed it to my kids and they've now been acting it out all morning. Um, but I, <laughs> as I fell, <laughs> the priest who's carrying the Blessed Sacrament, he goes, uh, he goes, you know, our Lord fell three times as he was walking to Calvary, JD. And I thought, oh, geez, I guess I better. Uh, and, and at the time, you know how like when you, get hurt, when you get hurt, you are kind of adrenaline up and you don't think it's that much. So I walked the rest of the thing. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I I went, there was kind of this support vehicle and my elbow was bleeding really bad. So I went in the support vehicle just long enough to like put a uh, paper towel on my elbow. But then I walked the rest of the thing. But then by that night, I, my, my ankle was the size of like, um, yeah, it was, as you said, it was elephantine in proportion. It was, it, it looked as if I had no ankle at all. And, uh, and then by yesterday morning, I couldn't walk at all. And I... <laughs> I was staying, I stayed overnight Wednesday night at Notre Dame because we were some friends at Notre Dame and I lost the key to my room and it was the whole, it was a whole cluster and it was just, a, it was just a cluster of epic proportions and my room was up this flight of really high stairs that I kept having climb up and down and up and down over and over again and it was just, it was just a, a, a preponderance of clustering situation. Uh, but then when I, you kept telling me I had to go to the hospital and Kate kept telling me I had to go to the hospital. And I did, my foot swelled a lot and basically turned into one bruise. So I did wonder if maybe I broke it. So I went to kind of an urgent care yesterday and it took me kind of all day to be able to get an x-ray, but I got an x-ray. The lady didn't think it was broken, but it was, I mean, I bit it pretty hard. I am grateful that you put life and limb on the line for, <laughs> for our coverage. I just, I feel like I, I, I feel like I should, I feel like I deserve a little credit for journalisming under those sort of certain, like there's no uh, journalism. And, uh, and uh, well, I mean, I, I will give you due credit when I've read the copy. <laughs> um, 
you know, at the moment, I just have your word for it. <laughs> All right. We will be uh, right back. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to us by Seton Home Study School Scholarship Fund. Seton Home Study School, a longtime sponsor of this podcast, firmly believes in the power of a high-quality Catholic education to transform lives and shape future leaders. Their mission at Seton Home Study School is to make Catholic education accessible to as many families as possible. So, Ed, what have they done? Well, they are literally handing out grants to help families facing financial hardships to make sure that, you know, all the kids that that want to uh, can benefit from a Seton education, which is really rooted in fostering a love of the faith across all subjects. Last year, they awarded, I think, $70,000 in financial aid to uh, just under 400 students, I think. It's, I mean, this is, this is real impact giving that they're doing, um, allowing kids to start or continue their Catholic education to thrive academically and spiritually and personally. Um, and, and they're asking for help from other families uh, to, to give to this scholarship fund, to help spread Catholic education to families who want and need it and, um, and are reliant on, on, this, on, the, on the academic program that, that Seton provides. That's right. If you think Seton Home Study School is an apostolate worth supporting, if you think it's a good idea to help more students be able to access Catholic education and to help more families approach the prospect of uh, homeschooling in a Catholic way with through an accredited school with all the support that Seton Home Study School offers, there are several ways that you can support their financial aid program. You can make a one-time or a recurring donation online by going to setonhome.org slash donate. You could send a check by mail. You could make a donation over the phone by calling their office at 540-622-5556. That's 540-622-5556. Or you can just help spread the word about their financial aid program by sharing their cause with your friends, your family, and your fellow parishioners. But Seton Home Study School is committed to the Seton Home Study School Scholarship Fund because they want to spread um, Catholic, accredited, faithful, serious education to as many families as possible. They want your help. And Ed, I think we at The Pillar uh, are going to make our own donation to the Seton Home Study School donation, don't you think? I, I think that's entirely likely. Um, I, I, I'm strongly in favor of families who want to give a Catholic education to their children being able to do so. Let's do it. We're not only advertisers, we're also supporters. Seton Home Study School, setonhome.org slash donate. All right, Ed, we are back uh, from our commercial break where we were talking all about the Seton Home Study School Scholarship Fund, which I hope that our listeners will support because uh, Seton is a longtime friend of the show and longtime supporter of the show, and I think they're trying to do a good thing. Oh, yes, yes. Sorry, I did. <laughs> I'm bad at this. I did. I do. I don't know when you're pausing for breath. I don't know when you're about to start a new topic. I don't know when you're you know, tossing you the to ball, hit. my friend. I'm tossing you. I know, but so there's the, the the peek behind the curtain here. Um, JD's camera has been freezing off and on as we've been recording oh, the show. Yeah, I mean, not for long periods of time, but sort of five seconds still frames, and then it catches up. So I'm I'm never sure when the camera's frozen or when you're just sort of staring blankly at me, waiting for me to do something. So maybe I'm, I'm just. Maybe I've just been sitting still more frequently than I do. Seems unlikely. Okay. Um, Ed, uh, next week we are heading to Orlando, the uh, the jewel city of the American South, apparently. Um, and uh, for the sake of the USCCB... The Olive Garden of the Gulf Coast. The Olive Garden of the Atlantic Coast. Orlando is... Atlantic uh, Coast. Oh, right. Okay. I was going to give you a hard time, but you probably know where 
Pembrokeshire is or whatever, and I have no idea. So I guess Pembrokeshire? It's in Wales. I used to go kayaking there when I was a kid. There's <laughs> right, um, exactly. There's a river exactly. that so leads I out don't... into the Irish okay. Sea. Nobody cares. Uh, okay. No, it's got it's got the National Whitewater Kayaking Course and a and a on a run of rapids on the river and, and the the course is actually called the Bitches, which is fun to say if you're a 13 year old. Is it really? Yeah. What do you think yeah. the origin of that is? Well, I, I would imagine because it's a bitch to kayak, but you know, That's these things the- tend to be you know named by the the kind of enthusiasts of whitewater kayaking and stuff that you know well I the bitch is supposedly one. derives its name from at least 1909 when a steamer was holed on the rock but managed to beach before she sank the following year three lifeboat boatmen were drowned aiding were drowned aiding a catch foundered on the rocks that doesn't actually explain the name it just suggests precisely what no you say, it just that means that they named it that bitch. because apparently it's a yeah it's it, it it's a bitch you don't want to be there um the, this is the, the, it's interesting it's an interesting facet of cartography that often these names are you know uh, places are given names by the people who you know come to know them colloquially first before the sort of you know guy from the department of the interior comes in with his whatever it is that map makers use to measure stuff um in in his own memoirs, a guy who I I really my favorite writer, certainly my favorite American writer, Norman McLean, oh, recalls that in um in in his thing that in his home state of Montana, the they had a, a creek at the bottom of a ravine between two mountains that was a sort of tributary of um I forget what river. Um but it was known and had always been known since the area was settled as Wet Ass Creek, because you would lose your footing going down the ravine and sliding down backside first into the river. But when the sort of Department of the Interior guys came in to sort of make the official government maps of it, um, the map maker was a kind of, you know, dour Presbyterian figure, and he wasn't going to write that. So he he sort of tried to phoneticize it into an Indian-looking word. So it's now, yeah, Witas or Watasi or something like that. And it's still called that today. (laughs) That's funny. Okay, well, we are headed to Orlando, the... um the uh, Pembrokeshire of the Atlantic coast, if you will. And uh, we're doing so, oh, now you've frozen. Okay. And we're doing so for the USCCB spring meeting. Um, the The spring meeting of the USCCB is not as agenda heavy as the fall meeting. Um, the, the bishops meet twice a year as a body in the fall. They always meet in Baltimore in the spring. They meet in different places. And every third year, the meeting is a retreat rather than a kind of meeting. Things have gotten off kilter in recent years because First, there was the McCarrick scandal, which prevented them. Like, I think in 2019, so the first spring meeting after the McCarrick scandal broke, which was spring of 2019, they were supposed to meet, like, at in Santa Barbara, California, but the perception was they couldn't because it was, like, just right after McCarrick, and, you know, it would have looked a little bit... They wildcatted back to Baltimore. Unseemly. So they moved it back to Baltimore. It cost them a ton of money to cancel the contracts and everything. But I think the concern was... But perception is more important than reality. I think that was right, because I think their concern was the optics of going to a beautiful place. So they didn't... They held the meeting back in Baltimore, which I do think cost them a lot of money, as I understand it. Then subsequent to that, we had um, COVID, so that was interrupting things. And and then the bishops did have their spring meeting last year, but it was a retreat. Um, I want to say in San Diego, if I remember correctly. Yes, it was in San Diego. Um, and so this is the first sort of out-of-town spring meeting that the bishops have had in quite some time. It's the first out-of-town spring meeting I've ever been to. Oh, really? Yeah. For all of the reasons you just outlined. I only yeah. started this 
yeah, journalism right, right. lark in yeah. 2018, the week that yeah. McCarrick happened. Um, so yeah, I've never actually been to a to a June meeting that wasn't in Baltimore. Yeah, so the the June meeting is or any USCCB meeting fewer that wasn't bishops in Baltimore. attend. There are bishops who aren't able to make it, maybe, you know, because they have their own things going on. So so fewer bishops attend, and the agenda is lighter, and um, and that kind of thing, um, and and that is coupled with the fact that the bishops now are. And as as we know, because we've talked about many, many times over the past two years, have made a commitment to having many, many more executive sessions, closed door sessions during the course of all of their meetings. So um, the perception was after the great Eucharistic coherence debates of 2021, the bishops sort of made a decision that they should fight, excuse me, have fraternal dialogue in private rather than having quite so much fraternal dialogue in public. And so um, starting, I want to say, in the fall of 2021, they started having more of their meeting kind of behind closed doors in executive sessions. And so they've gradually decreased the amount of stuff that happens in public session. Um, and so but we go about, anyway. We go anyway because we think it's important and um, we want to bring you as much as we can from it. But this uh, next week will be a fair amount of uh, of executive session meeting, and the bishops don't announce the content of the executive session portion of the meeting. Um, and so we'll tell you what's going to be in the public session, and then we'll tell you what's going to be in the executive session. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's what we're for. That's, that's why what we we're go. for. That's what we do. That's what. We... Okay, so in the public session next week, the bishops will have a couple of things on their uh, agenda. They will consult on the prospect of canonizing uh, the Shreveport the Shreveport martyrs. martyrs some prospective saints from the Diocese of Shreveport, Louisiana. And I must tell you that I don't know a whole lot about the Shreveport martyrs. There are five priests who died in 1873 uh, during a yellow fever epidemic. Um, all of them have French names, so my guess is that they're all French. Um, but that is about as much as I know about them. Um, we'll probably write, have something written up about them in the early part of the I'm, I'm sure we meeting. will, but I feel like this is the second hearing for them. I feel like we've had an update on the Shreveport no, Martyrs. No, we've had other Cajuns, but I don't think we've had the Shreveport Martyrs. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. There's cool. not a second hearing for these. Before a person's cause can be advanced, the Bishop's Conference has to be consulted, and so there will be a presentation on these Shreveport Martyrs, but it'll... I, You know, I've gotten, as you know, I, I, I say this every every year before we go to a USCCB meeting, and and it's not untrue. Um, and it's no less true now that you definitely enjoy these more than me. Um, yeah. You you delight. I mean, this is your. I'm a conference nerd. You well, you are a conference nerd, but that wasn't the phrase I was going to go for. I mean, this is your. You describe it as your Super Bowl, but I I think it's something better. I mean, this is your. This is your sort of Parliament. Your your C-SPAN. Your you know. This is my C-SPAN. Yeah. This is my C-SPAN. Yeah. This is you delight in the procedural stuff. You de- you delight in the in the subtle exchange of looks across the hall. You you read the the chessboard of the room very very well, um, which is why it's important that, that you go. I I agree. Um, I delight in it less so because. Um, I, it's just, you know, it's not my sandbox. The, the USCCB, I don't think I'm lifting the curtain too high here to say is, is, is more your beat than mine because you have more familiarity with it. You have, um, you have more history with it uh, as a body and, and among its members. And, and that's, that's cool. Um, but I do like, I have developed some things that I look forward to a little bit, or at least I, I consider highlights. And I have to say the sort of regular way in which these meetings are now dotted with, you know, oh, here are some saints. 
that um, yeah, whose we'll causes are seeing it. Like this has become a pretty much at least if not annual. Yeah, pretty standard. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's great because yeah. you know, I I don't tend to think of the the role of the saints as in roll call um as growing quite as steadily and regularly as it in fact is you know you see announcements coming out of rome about you know the saints been canonized and often they're from places i don't know well and you know involve people i've never heard of but at the conference meetings the sort of steady stream of basically local causes is is i think really great and encouraging that there is and you know what? This is, I wouldn't mind, we should find someone to do this. This would be a great freelance piece. I would like to read a a potted history of the Catholic causes that have been sent to Rome from the United States dioceses over the last 10 years. Just like, what are the, you know, this this is, you know, to give a sense, not just of the, of the individuals and, and the stories and everything, but also the scale. Like, this is how deep and wide our Catholic history and culture is in this country. I think that'd be fun, but yeah, I really have taken to, to looking forward to, um, to these also, I mean, of course, to playing dice in the hotel stairways with, with a couple of bishops who, you know, join me for cigarette breaks and stuff like that. That's fun too. Okay. So, uh, first thing on the agenda is this consultation. So Archbishop Pierre will give a speech. Archbishop Broly will give a speech. Um, the same thing. And then, uh, some of the things the bishops will kind of vote on in public session, they, you know, the conference... Wait, I'd like you to make a call at this point while we're going through the agenda. Okay. Um, which Archbishop Pierre is going to turn up? Because <laughs> there's always two, There's it's always one of two at these meetings. Archbishop Pierre, the nuncio, always turns up and gives an address um, to the, to the assembly. The spirit of François. Yeah, either he either he tells them off about the something. The Holy Father wants for you to inculcate the greater sense of synodality in this church, in this great land of the United States of America. I would like to apologize to any and all French <laughs> listeners we may have. I think that was fairly accurate. Okay. Um, but yeah. I, I've been taking my, some pain medicine here, but I think that was fairly accurate. It could be. Uh, my my experience of Archbishop Pierre is that he either turns up to wag his finger at the bishops and tell them they're not they're not pulling hard enough on one rope or another. Or Are he turns we up, prioritizing the priorities of the Holy Father, the principle of unity in the church, to whom we have all sworn our obedience and fidelity? Uh, okay, that. I mean, often his complaints have been granular. I remember one year he basically told them off about they hadn't brought in metaceutics. Um, have we implemented and, the brevio processes brevio? Yeah, I mean, he basically did. Um, I remember that. That's funny. I do. It was. I. I was surprised by it. Uh, if for no no other reason than it, it suggested it's eerily a, a, specific. It was eerily specific and suggested a sort of access to to tribunal data across the country that I'm. I just wasn't well, yes. entirely aware that Nitzitzer had. Of course um, they do. You know the signatures tribunal surveys. Oh yeah, I know the signature does. It just didn't occur to me that that was being filtered at the Nitzitzer. But anyway, oh, I think Archbishop Pierre can get any access to any information he wants. Maybe. Um, I, anyway, so he either does that or he he sort of turns up with a with a kind of um, school teacher hat on, so to speak, and proceeds to explain something to the bishops that he thinks they haven't quite understood. Uh, so which one do you think we're going to get? Are we going to get Professor Pierre or are we going to get um, sort of, you know, you've got detention, Pierre? Well, here's my question about that. How close do you think Archbishop Pierre is? Pierre, Archbishop Pierre is now what? Uh, 77? 77, yeah. How close do you think he is to having his resignation from Office of Apostolic Nuncio um, accepted? 
because am I, I right that, that his birthday falls into February? What quarter of the year does it fall? January. His birthday is January thirtieth. Okay, so he's seventy-seven now. I think he's got a year and a half. I think he's eighteen months off of retirement. I think yeah. he's gonna. The Pope's gonna keep him on for um, till he's seventy-nine. That last speech will be a jubilant look back on all the things that we have accomplished together and that you have accomplished together in the spirit of Pope Francis. But these next two, I think, will be will ride hard on um, synodality. I think that you saw that Michael Sean Winters, um, col- I guess you could say column, but that seems a bit... Uh, overblown for what it was, but you saw that Michael Sean Winters thing that complained that the bishops aren't going to talk sufficiently about synodality at the bishops meeting. I assumed that that was an exercise in ironic sarcasm. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Since the bishops gathering together to discern together the will of God for the pastoral life of the church. You know what? There isn't enough of in this body of collegiality and synodality, enough (laughs) navel gazing and self-referential jargon. Do we need to talk more about the thing that we're doing or can we do the thing? Anyhow, I would not be surprised if Archbishop Pierre gave the bishop... I would not be surprised, again, I don't know, but I would not be surprised if Archbishop Pierre gave the bishops a stern talking to about synodality. I would not be surprised if Archbishop Pierre encouraged the bishops in light of the C- in light of the CUA study, which we'll get to in a minute. I would not be encouraged, surprised if Archbishop Pierre gave the bishops much uh, speech about smelling like their sheep, but I would also not be surprised if in light of the, the, what we'll call the Olson scandal, the ongoing scandal in the diocese of um, Fort Worth, Texas, coupled with like, I know the, from, I I have heard that Archbishop Pierre has been displeased about some of the reporting in, in uh, Tennessee about the Bishop, what is that Bishop in Tennessee? Um, Bishop Sticker. Bishop Rick Sticker in the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee. I know Archbishop Pierre has been displeased about some of the reporting about that. I would not be surprised if he sort of focused on some exhortation about pastoral humility or something like that, or not, which by which I think he would probably mean not putting your dirty laundry in public based upon the profundity of the Fort Worth scandal. I would listen with rapt attention. If oh, I like Arch- every. I mean, I find Archbishop Pierre to be a very convincing and interesting speaker. Okay. Okay. So that's a that's an opinion. <laughs> okay. So we've now talked about two things that will happen at the meeting. Um, so Shreveport martyrs. Pierre will give a speech. Brolio will give a speech. Um, the bishops will talk about. Okay. So uh, you probably know Ed that the conference decides how to spend its money based upon and how to allocate its resources, how to sort of um, allocate its budget and also make personnel allocations based upon a triennial strategic planning process it undergoes by which every three years it just sort of affirms some particular priorities it wants to aim to accomplish. And um, and the bishops right now need to sort of finalize the strategic plan for 2025 to 2028. So that will be um, presented by the uh, chair of the Committee on Strategic Planning, uh, uh, Plans and Priorities, and um, and then discussed and voted on. And I, I think the priorities right now are like evangelization, strengthening family life, catechesis, and then the Eucharistic coherence thing. And I think that the bishops will. There's usually some kind of grumbling about there. There's usually there are usually people who stand up during the strategic planning prior and priorities process over the past ten years who stand up at various points to say that the plans don't sufficiently reflect 
the priorities of Pope Francis and that there should be more environmentalism in the plan. And, you know, take that for what it's worth. I'm not offering a commentary on the substance, just saying I anticipate that that will be the case. But I also imagine that the priorities and plans for the 25 to 28 strategic planning document will be approved. The bishops have some ISIL voting um, to vote on three uh, translations, um, the liturgical text and liturgy of the hours for St. Faustina Kowalska, the ordinary of the liturgy of the hours. So they're getting close on the liturgy of the hours. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, Father Mankey, who is the um, prefect of the of the Congregation for Divine Worship of the USCCB, which is to say the executive director of the Secretariat for Divine Worship at the USCCB, told us that he thinks the whole um, breviary revision process, this gigantic process that the USCCB has undertaken to revise the, um, the, uh, the, the breviary, could be finished in 2024. And he said the big challenge will be that the New American Bible is being revised and then NAB revisions have to be finished to be inserted into the breviary. But for the NAB part, he said, or for the breviary part, he said, we're going to really wrap a lot of this up in 2023. And indeed, voting on the ordinary of the of the breviary means they're getting pretty, pretty close. I mean, they're getting pretty close on the Liturgy of the Hour stuff. I, I, um, I don't use the American yep. breviary because not because it's bad or terrible or whatever else, but just because it's not the, it's not the one I learned to pray with. So I keep to the one, keep to the one I have as it were. Um, but what is the general trend of the translations? Cause I, as I understand it, it's, it's harmonizing some of the antiphons and texts a little better with other translations that are in the world. Is that roughly speaking true? Yes, that is the aim that the translation, which the U S uses right now kind of is, um, thought to be out of step with some of the other translations and probably much was much more dynamic of a translation approach. And it's sort of um, hermeneutic of translation that was much more sort of dynamic and flexible and adaptive. By that you mean loosey-goosey. Loosey-goosey, and... some people would say. And so the new effort of translation, much like the the translation, of the, the retranslation of the Roman Missal in 2011 or 2012, or when was that? Uh, I think it was earlier than that. I think it was like four, Yeah, I think it was four or five. Yeah, okay. much like that retranslation of the Roman Missal, which aimed to um, have a more faithful translation of the Roman Missal. This aims to be a more faithful translation of the translation of. The and what about this New American Bible of which you speak? What about it? Um, is this is this a total new? Is this a? Is I'm not sure the extent of the revisions on that. Very honestly, I, I we were offered an interview with the with the sort of head of the translation committee that we haven't yet actually conducted that interview. So we should we should do that because I myself am not totally familiar. I with would that. Uh, yeah, I think we should definitely do that because I have I American biblical texts that I hear used in in liturgical settings often have, and I mean again this isn't a criticism. It's just a it it is you, if you right. it's an observation. It's an observation, but I find I find American translations that are used very jarring, not because I think they're bad or evil or anything like that. I'm not assigning a value judgment to it. But again, if you the same thing with the breviary, if you if you grow up and you develop a prayer life around and a familiarity with um, particular texts and translation of texts, there's a there's a rhythm and a poetry to it that you learn, which is one of the reasons I mean, I I, I think I said this before. Um, this is one of the reasons why, you know, the true utility of the breviary and doing the, the liturgy of the hours throughout the day is is not just the mechanics of doing it itself and the discipline of doing it itself, but it habituates you to memorizing the Psalms effectively. So they become a sort of um, constant internal prayer that you have, um, you know, you, you've, you've internalized them to the point where you, you can recall the Psalms and pray the Psalms without a text. And so to hear, you know, a different version of a prayer you know very, very well can be very jarring and you can feel like it just sounds wrong and, and all of that stuff. 
So I, I would be interested to to understand, like, why why do we have in the church? I don't know what six English translations of the Bible that are used in different places. I'm guesstimating there, but I feel like I'm probably not far off. Um, I mean, it, just, it seems like a lot, I, and I'm not sure. What I'm do you not mean? Sure. Like there's there's a New American Bible, there's the RSV, there's the Jerusalem Bible. Well, there's most of like, those aren't litur- oh most of well I mean only the NAB is approved for liturgical. Sure, sure, sure. Only one is used in the liturgical place in in the liturgy of a particular region or whatever else. But I mean, we've got a lot of different English translations of the Bible that the Church recognizes as being more or less kosher. Yeah, and then like you know, do, is that something that we do? We need a diversity of translation of the scriptures. That seems to me to be a bit like I don't want to be a you know, I don't want to come across as a sort of Shiite here, but, you know, I, I feel like we, we should, like, a, a sort of definitive translation would be more helpful. That's For my instinct. Worth, I, I actually think that would make you more of a Sunni. Is it? Okay. Being a people of, a person of the book, rather a person, rather than a person of the, of a hierarchy. Like, isn't Shia Islam effectively hierarchical Islam rather than textual Islam? I mean, I realize that's a reductive thing, but Shias think that the, that they're, sons of Muhammad have constituted a kind of priesthood and or kind of hierarchical constitution where Sunnis are much more I thought solo. it was more I mean I, I know there is a sort of genealogical aspect to it but I thought there was also something to do with the you know who who holds to the sort of literal textualism of the Quran and who are oh, more I'm invested sure in the so sort true. of sayings of the prophet around it and, and stuff like that but anyway okay well anywho I'm sure I butchered it either way so the conference will talk about the about um the liturgy of the hours process, and then they're going to vote on something pertaining to um, um, the statutes governing ISIL's work. And we don't exactly know what. So there's so ISIL, the International Committee for English on the Liturgy, is a is an organization which exists to provide translations that can be approved for bishop by bishop English speaking bishops conferences, Anglophonic bishops conferences around the world. And the purpose of ISIL, which is a kind of um, inter conference project, which is to say a project supported by several bishops' conferences, financially and with personnel and otherwise, is is in part to help to harmonize liturgical texts used in uh, different Anglophonic countries around the world. And there's some change to the statutes of ISIL, and we, we don't yet know. I bet it has something to do with finances, because I think the finances of funding ISIL is a little bit complex, but I, we, they haven't yet sort of announced or unfolded precisely what that is, but it's sure to be interesting for us. I, I think you're probably right that it must be about finances in some way, because if it was about the actual governing principle, of, the I bishops, if, if it were not about the finances, if it's about revising some financial policies pertaining to ISIL or personnel policies pertaining to ISIL, the bishops will probably just vote in mass for whatever change is recommended. If it were about changing the sort of philosophy of translation or the pr- translation approach, it would be a huge political issue among the bishops and they'd be all over it. With lots well, of, and it also wouldn't just be a huge fight for the U.S. bishops. It would be a huge fight for all of the other right. bishops' conferences yeah, that yeah. you know feed into ISIL, and you know it would yeah. be. We would have heard about it by now. So, so I guess my what I'm saying. yes is that this is effectively a, some some housekeeping, more or less housekeeping change to the statutes of ISIL. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. The bishops are going to vote to authorize a committee of the conference to develop a new pastoral statement addressing persons with disabilities in the life of the church. Um, although they have sacramental ministry for persons with disabilities in the United States is a good document, the, the broad pastoral statement on persons with disabilities in the life of the church is like something like 50 years old. It's from the 70s, I think, so this is a good thing. The bishops will vote on approving a new pastoral plan for Hispanic and Latino ministry, 
and then we'll talk about how to revise the ethical and religious directives related um, to healthcare services. We'll give you more of a preview on that. In the executive sessions, the bishops are going to talk about, we're told, at least two things. I don't know anything, everything else, but at least two things. I understand that the bishops are going to have so-called fraternal dialogues about... Um, do you remember, Ed, in November, there was a conversation, and it was a little bit esoteric if you weren't so totally keyed in on it. All of the sudden, Bishop Stowe was objecting to something related to forming consciences for faithful citizenship and how the bishops might revise or update forming consciences for faithful citizenship. And the bishops decided that they would not plan to update forming consciences for faithful citizenship ahead of the 24 presidential election, but... It was would... my understanding, if I'm recalling this correctly, and tell me if I'm wrong, that basically the argument that sprouted was we shouldn't waste our time tinkering with an update to forming consciences. We should instead invest fully in a total page one rewrite. The possibility for, of a rewrite. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, that's absolutely right. For 28, basically. Right. So it's my understanding that during the executive sessions, the bishops are going to have some conversational dialogue, probably in small groups, about how they would want to see forming consciences for faithful citizenships revised. And then those small groups will report to the large group and there'll be conversation about that. At then, which point, after the groups have reported back and it's presented centrally to the group, that by that point, Cardinal McElroy will stand up and tell everyone they're an idiot who doesn't understand what Pope <laughs> Francis' secret thoughts are. Yeah, he That's how these things okay. go, right? And the other thing that the bishops apparently will discuss in the executive sessions, and there may be other things too, but these are the things we're aware of, and we've heard this from several sources, is that the bishops will discuss um, the COA study. The COA study that says priests don't trust their bishops. They'll have private conversations. <laughs> What? What? They'll have some private and closed door conversations. What is going on? What is happening here? I'm, they'll have some private and closed door conversations about the publicly released data, which indicates that priests don't trust their bishops or think that they'll, they'll be transparent. Or you, you find it ironic that the bishops are going to are going to retreat to secret session to discuss the fact that their priests think they're untransparent. I do, and I. Well, calls. that will convince them, J.D. Nothing will restore trust amongst the local clergy than to make sure that they know that their bishops are taking this very seriously behind closed doors. And look, I have long urged that you the have bishop, you broke I this for been, us. I have been among those to urge that the bishops have more executive session, or at the very least, that the bishops do not have TV broadcasts of their meetings, because I can see that some bishops don't speak. Because of the, um, I can see that some bishops don't speak because of the cameras and some bishops speak because of the cameras. In other words, some pander to the cameras and some shirk from them and that, that undermines honest to God fraternal exchange. I have long advocated that the bishops change that, but still. And I continue to say the halfway house here is, is let the reporters the in the room. Rules. I totally agree. I think Print cool. journalists only. You can only write parliamentary sketch versions of the day's proceedings. I, I think, I think be the fun. bishops have decided, I think they've decided to chart a path, which is effectively to make their public sessions more, you know, continue to allow their public sessions to be open, but to take all the really interesting stuff behind closed doors. It sounds, it seems to me that that's the path they have chosen to chart and, you know, once they're prerogative, but it does seem to me a little funny to think about them having this conversation about why priests don't trust them, but making sure that nobody can know about it. Uh, yeah. So that's all the news that's fit to print from Orlando, the city by the sea. We will be there. We'll be we will be at the Orlando Red Lobster. I would not mind going to the I would not mind going to the corporate 
the corporate Red Lobster, like the the main Red Lobster that's attached to the corporate headquarters of Red Lobster, where they try out all the test concepts and stuff. I mean, there could be some crazy You want to go to the Red Lobster f- Experimental Factory Kitchen? Yes, I would not mind going to the Red Lobster Experimental Factory Kitchen. I mean, again, you're on your own for this. This is... Uh... <laughs> it, uh, shellfish is my kryptonite but I, I i wish you well i we will keep you posted we will have published in the days to come some previews on some usccb stuff and uh, in case you're wondering this week's episode of the pillar podcast is brought to you by the seton home study schools scholarship fund the seton home study school scholarship fund aims to make accredited catholic family-based home-based schooling available to more families and more children across this country. And if you think that's worthwhile, go to seatonhome.org slash donate. That's seatonhome.org slash donate to learn about how you can support the Seton Home Study Schools Scholarship Fund. Ed, it has been good to be with you, and I will be limping alongside you. Well, you won't be limping, but I will look forward to limping through Orlando with you. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be great. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and J.D. Production. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. My podcasting partner is Ed Condon, our really superlative executive producer. I just want to take a minute to recognize how great our executive producer is because she just does good stuff, don't you think? Oh, uh, absolutely. Our superlative executive producer who gets who deserves far more credit for many, many things than she gets is, uh, is Kate Oliveira. And uh, we will be back from Orlando next week. Adios. Thank you.